It's good to see everyone this morning. If you'll turn your Bibles, this is a time when we open God's Word, important time. We want to hear from God. We have sung to God and prayed to God. We want to hear now from God as we open His Word this morning. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, we're in an ongoing verse-by-verse study of 1 Peter. And in the providence of God, we have come to a passage about, on Father's Day, we've come to a passage about wives. I did not make this up or plan this. This is how it unfolded in our verse-by-verse study. Especially written to wives who live with ungodly or difficult or harsh husbands. This is going to be a countercultural sermon. You already get that. You already figured that one out. Let me read these verses to you. I'm reading it as countercultural, reading it as controversial, but let me read it to you. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart and the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It's interesting that Peter gives us six verses written to women, and then he gives us one verse written to men, verse 7. It's interesting. Men live with their wives in an understanding way, and we'll talk about that next week. But men, it's not fair for you to be here this week and not be here next week to hear what God has to say to wives and to women and not hear what God has to say to men. So I encourage you to be here next time. You say, why six verses? Six verses to women and only one to men. And some women are sitting here saying, well, that's about all men can handle is one verse at a time. And maybe you're right. And Maybe you're right. But I would say this to you. In all the years of ministry that I have been involved in, it's usually wives, wives, six to one easily, six to one who experience suffering from an unbelieving or difficult husband. And I think there's things here for men, there's principles that we can use because some men, quite frankly, live with unbelieving wives. And so there are certainly principles that all of us can apply in this passage this morning. Very practical issue. This is a very practical sermon this morning. I heard an illustration from a pastor this week who was preaching on this text. Actually, he's reading about Augustine. Have you heard of Augustine, the early church father? Excuse me, church father, Augustine, who lived in the fourth century. He had a mother named Monica. He called her the noblest woman, a faithful witness for Christ. 
And he, he talks about how God used her to win her pagan husband, Patricius, and her wayward son, Augustine, to Christ. Augustine, uh, if you know anything about his testimony, he was a very worldly man. He sought satisfaction in worldly philosophies and, and pleasures. Uh, but the entire time, he tells us that his mother, Monica, was pursuing him uh, to bring him to Christ, admonishing him, praying for him with tears that her son, Augustine, would come to Christ. And finally, at age 33, Augustine repented and embraced the gospel, and his mother's faith, he says, became his own. He wrote this about his mother. She travailed for her son in spirit with greater pain than her body had in bringing him into the world and was permitted for the encouragement of future mothers that before her death, she was able to see the answers to her prayers. End of quote. She died in her son's arms on the way home from, excuse me, one of their journeys. Uh, and if you know anything about Augustine, he's probably one of the most influential theologians in the history of the church but he never forgot the impact of his mother's life. Listen to what he writes in Confessions. Confessions is some introspection. It's a book on introspection. I shouldn't say it that way, but he's basically prayers even to God. In his book on Confessions, he writes this about his, his mother and how she related to his father, who was not a believer. Listen to this. When she arrived at marriageable age, she was given to a husband and served him. She strove to win him to God, speaking to him about you, God, through her conduct by which you made her beautiful, an object of reverent love and a source of admiration to her husband. She endured offenses, and there were lots of them. I read about a lot of them. She endured a lot of offenses, but she looked forward to seeing your mercy upon my dad. I added those words. So that he would believe in you and be made chaste. End of quote. There's a great example of the passage we're looking at this morning. Pleasant and attractiveness. Um engaging that her unbelieving husband and son would both come to Christ through her life. In this passage, we're talking about context of the Greco-Roman world. We're talking about a context that was very uh, male-dominated. Um, the husband determined the religion of the family. If the husband wanted to worship at a pagan temple, you, the husband decided what everybody in the family was going to worship, and that's what you did. It's a very difficult situation. So the, the wife was obligated to, to adopt his religion. And the, if the husband decided he wanted to be a Christian, then the wife would be required, along with the children, to go to church with him. And... If a wife, you see how difficult this would be for a wife, if she was a committed follower of Jesus Christ and her husband was not, and she started attending a church, he could see that as a threat to his authority. And so it was a very difficult situation that Peter is writing into here. He could shun her, he could leave her, he could abuse her. And so we had a very challenging situation for wives. More, more so than for the husband because he could decide, but the wife could not. 
So in this passage, rather than just helping women endure or even escape from being married to this kind of person, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say get out of the situation. He doesn't say that. But he gives them a strategy, and that's what I want you to see. He gives them a strategy for winning them to Christ. 1 Peter 3.1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. See, the pattern of these husbands is they were disobedient to the word. They were most likely, the, the term means they were non-believers. They were non-believers. And so he's, he's addressing women who are married primarily here to unbelievers. So, so ladies, just take heart. If that is your situation, and I know that's the situation of some in this church and many throughout the body of Christ, God is aware of these kinds of situations. And he knows that you are there, out there, dealing with this. He's not saying marry, he is not saying here uh, marry an unbeliever. He's not saying that in this passage. He's not saying that at all. The Bible is clear on that subject. If you get married, you're to marry a believer. You don't have darkness and light coming together. 2 Corinthians says, uh, if a woman wants to get married, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, only in the Lord. You marry a believer. A believer should marry a believer. That's clear in the Bible. Most likely, these women were, came to Christ after they were married. I'm not saying it's true in all the situations, but most likely, it was after they were married. Paul doesn't say change your status. Remember in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Peter doesn't say change your status either. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you may recall, he says, remain as you are. If you came to Christ and your husband is an unbeliever, or you came to Christ and your wife is an unbeliever, you just remain, you stay where you are. Don't leave them. If they want to leave, fine, but you don't leave them. You remain in the status in which you are. He says that to slaves as well. Don't seek the, your freedom. Just stay and remain as you are. If freedom becomes an opportunity, get it, but if it's not, you just stay and remain as you are. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says you're there to be a witness to them. You're there to be used by God in their life, and you stay there. And then I will also say this, an observation of this, if this is what God says, God says that a woman should conduct herself with an unsaved husband, then this is also how a woman should conduct herself with a saved husband as well. So every wife is included in this text, every wife, at least by principle. And like I said, unbelieving uh, I think it's unfortunate even though we're talking about unbelievers that even though it's even true of Christians sometimes you get husbands that are disobedient to the word. You have Christian husbands who claim to know Christ and they become disobedient to the word and they're difficult to live with and they're harsh to their wives. I've been like that in my marriage at times. <laughs> I've been like that where I've, I've been unloving, insensitive, uncaring, prideful, and selfish. I've been all of that. Disengaged or neglectful, disobedient to the word in the way I live my life. I've done that. And threatened to lock me in the attic one time because I was just losing my cool up in the attic. She says, if you don't calm down, you're going to be living up there, you know. But 
But you know what I'm saying? It's just like, I know we all, men, even as Christians, and our wives could be tempted to, wives who are tempted, excuse me, wives who are married to men like this are tempted. They could say things like, well, you expect me to be nice to this guy? You expect me to be kind to this guy when he doesn't treat me nice? Why should I treat him nice if he's not going to treat me that way? When he starts treating me right, then I'll start treating him right. That would be the temptation for a wife to say. But that is not what Peter says here. That is not what he has said in all the verses up till now. According to Peter, God says, wives exhibit godly behavior even if your husband is living in an ungodly way. And that's not easy. And that's easy to say, but that is not easy. Peter says, do something supernatural. That's what we've been saying all along. Do something supernatural. Adorn the doctrine of God. Become truly attractive to Him, and perhaps your godly lifestyle will convict Him of His ungodly lifestyle and cause Him to become the man of God, man that God wants him to be. I think, I think this passage helps, you, helps women especially, but anybody married to men or women married to an unbeliever helps you to view the situation in a different way. Look at it from a different perspective. I came across an article by Steve, Pastor Steve Davy. This is interesting. He says, when, when your ears... When you hear and your eyes see the sin in your spouse, it is never an accident, he says. It is the plan and purpose of God to demonstrate through you the loving confrontation and the transforming work of grace, the sharpening of iron against iron. These are the moments, one author wrote, when marriage becomes ministry. Whoever thought that your marriage would become a ministry? A ministry is hard work, right? Ladies, before you were married, you were looking for someone just right. To marry, you were looking for Mr. Right, and then you found him. But after you married him, you discovered that he isn't always Mr. Right. In fact, you soon began to wonder if you married Mr. Wrong. The truth is, we always marry the wrong person. Did you hear that? We always marry the wrong person, so to speak. And if we're honest, marriage shows us that we're the wrong person too. In fact, marriage is the great revealer of how wrong we are on so many levels and how different we thought each other were during courtship than the people we realized we were after marriage. One of the first challenges of marriage is learning to love the stranger to whom you find yourself married. This is nothing less than God's plan to work in us and through us the development of and the demonstration of grace. Paul David Tripp wrote, the flaws you see in your spouse are not accidents. They are the tools God has planned to use to pry you out of the worship of self and into the worship of God. End of quote. It's just really in your face, isn't it? Man. It really speaks to all of us. Well, you don't know my husband, Rod. You don't just don't know my husband. Well, let's lay your husband aside this morning and let's, let's look at this, these passages and hear what God has to say. You, you are the greatest gospel tract your husband has, ladies. 
You are the greatest evangelistic tool your husband has. In the same way, you wives, the first thing he's going to say here, we might as well just say it, be submissive. That's the first thing he says. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. That's the first thing Peter tells us. In the same way, tells us that this is connected to what he's just said in chapter 2. And what he's about to say is connected to it. They're connected together. So in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Go back up to 1 Peter chapter 2. The, the exhortation of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. As aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers or the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, consistently observe them, over time observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Be, behave in such a way, Peter has been saying in our study of 1 Peter, behave in such a way that is noticeably different than everybody else. That unbelievers will get saved because of our countercultural lifestyles and our witness and the power of the gospel will be on display. The power of our salvation will be on display. He said earlier, be a good witness in, in, in society. You saw that in verses 13 through 17 to the government. Submit to the government. Then he says, submit to your employer, verses 18 through 23. Do things people don't normally do. Suffer unjustly and still submit. And then he says in 21 through 23, and this is the context of 1 Peter 3, wives submit to your husband. This is all the same context. He says in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, was, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Christ is our example of someone who suffered unjustly. We're to be like Christ. Submit means to fall in rank under, subjecting yourself to a higher authority for the purpose of obeying. Ephesians 5.22, it's all, this is said several times, you're familiar with these. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is God's design. Your argument is with God. This is God's design. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, Colossians 3.18, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2, 4 and 5, this is the ministry that older women should have in the local church right here. I'm going to read it to you. If you're an older woman, this is what you need to think about when you minister to younger women at Grace Church. That they may encourage, that older women may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so the word of God will not be dishonored. The whole context there is put the gospel on display, adorn the gospel, put feet to the gospel, put flesh to the gospel, live it out, he's saying. And it's not a popular teaching. I get it. It's not a popular teaching in our culture. It sounds chauvinistic, misogynistic is a new word. I don't even know how to define it exactly, but I think it fits here. 
But the whole idea, it's not popular. And these verses are misunderstood and they're misapplied by men who want to use them to have unquestionable authority over their wives and who want to use them for their own selfish demands and own selfish wants so they can lord over someone and mistreat them. They want to exploit their authority. I understand that. And that is acceptable in some cultures and that is acceptable in some religions even. But that is not biblical Christianity. That is wrong and that is sinful for a man to abuse his wife. to bully his wife physically by a domineering husband. That is sinful and excusable behavior and a woman should be protected from that. In fact, if you're listening to me this morning, I say this to you, if your husband is physically abusing you and you are hiding bruises, I encourage you, if it's at that point, to call the police. Call the police. And then seek out your elders in this church to come alongside you and help you and your husband through that. It's not acceptable. I think abusers sometimes can make a woman think that it's against the doctrine of submission to tell anybody. He wants to keep it all secret and quiet and within the household and you're not supposed to say anything. I just encourage you, don't do that. Be his helpmate. Do what's best for him and you and your family. Our church has a domestic abuse policy. If you have not read it, I encourage you to read it if you want more information on that. But that's just a side note. That's not the majority of situations, but that's there, I have to say that. I have to make sure you, because that's so prompt, so much in our culture today. But in verse, back to chapter three, verse one, it's not an absolute command to, for, for a, uh, to say submit to your husband, meaning you, you never not submit to him. Yes, you don't submit to him when he tells you to do something that disobeys God, just like, Submission to the government, submission to your employer. You stop there. When it goes against the will of God, you don't do it. You don't do it. And a wife has biblical resources. If she is living with an unrepentant adulterer, or if she's living with someone who's abandoned the family, or she's married to someone who's abandoned the family, there are biblical resources about those kinds of things. But nonetheless, Scripture is clear. Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands, and that's how God designed it when he created the world. They were equal in his eyes. He very clearly intended, though, that the man would be the leader of the home, and the wife would be his helper. Goes all the way back to creation. Goes all the way back to Genesis. She is a fellow heir of the grace of God. She's equal spiritually, but her role is different. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians says, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.3, I taught on this a while back, but listen to this again. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. It's, it's rooted in the Trinity. That Christ is in submission to the Father. Does that mean Christ is inferior? Not at all. Just a different role, a different function. 
And so husbands are called to be the leader in their marriages and they're gonna be held accountable for their marriages. It doesn't mean you don't include your wife in decisions and wives, if your husbands are not including you in decisions, if they're not, uh, if they're not, uh, if they're sinning and you admonish them, you admonish them respectfully, lovingly admonish. And you say it whether they wanna hear it or not. So that's the first thing Peter says, submit. And then he says, have respectful behavior in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, conduct or lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. Uh, morally pure character. Don't give in to his request and demands for sinful behavior or immoral behavior. It means you be careful what movies you watch. You be careful what books you read. You be careful what blogs you're going to and you're letting feed your mind. And the friends you associate with because some of these friends and some of these blogs give ungodly counsel. Who has your ear? Who has your ear? They will tell you to do the exact opposite of what Peter is telling you here. Beware of assertiveness techniques that tell you to draw boundaries and take the aggressiveness against this jerk that you live with. Folks, that is not rooted in Scripture, that is rooted in the flesh, that has nothing to do with gentleness and quietness. It sounds so right, and it makes so much sense to our minds, and that's the problem. When things start making sense to your mind, always be suspect. Because this is against our nature, what Peter's saying here. We should have guidelines, but don't let self be what drives what you do in difficult situations, especially when they're suffering. Let's respond as Christ responded. This is where there's true joy and there's true peace. This is where there's true blessing. Will not be in our manipulation and seeking to have control by using our own fleshly means. You don't want to work things out in your flesh the goal is to reach somebody. The goal is ministry. I just read that to you. The goal is conversion. The goal is to a conviction through your lifestyle. So you must be chaste and pure, respectful. It goes back to our fear of God. The reason I want to, the reason I want to respect my husband is because I fear and respect God. The reason I want to submit to government is because I fear and respect God. It makes me want to fear and respect government. The reason I fear my employer and respect my employer is because I fear and respect God. It's all rooted in God. I want to do that because God says to do it. I can't change him, 
but I can do what God tells me to do. I can do the right thing. That's why he says, wives, be subject to your husband as to the Lord. Your desire to honor your husband flows out of a desire to honor God. This is connected to something much bigger than you and him. So respectful behavior, I could have thought of other ways to say that, but that's, that's what Peter says. Respectful behavior. Thirdly, the way you dress. Verse three, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. The word adornment is the word cosmos, it's the word cosmetic. And, and, and really the emphasis here, ladies and, and gentlemen and, friend and men, the, the emphasis here is on the external. We live in a world that does not talk about the internal, it just talks about the externals. That's what this verse is talking about, merely. The, King, the New American Standard adds the word merely because that's what it's talking about. It's, never, it's not saying don't ever braid your hair and don't ever wear jewelry. It's never saying that. Some people have said that. That is not what this verse is saying. It if it's saying don't braid your hair and don't wear jewelry, then it's also saying don't wear clothes. And that's not what it's saying. It's talking about the emphasis being on the outside only. And it summarizes braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. It just summarizes, and I'm speaking in generalizations here, but it just summarizes the very things that women focus on sometimes. You know, it's just what... Their struggle can be sometimes. In Peter's day, no different than today. They're extravagant hairdos, extravagant jewelry, extravagant clothes, always trying to outdo one another. Just like in our culture, there's an obsession with outward beauty. And, and you just consider that industry today, billions and billions of dollars, providing everything for women from makeovers to injections to surgeries to assortment. Have you been in the women's department of the mall? I mean, good grief. Men just try to find a chair. There is no place. It just goes on for levels. They know. They know. They know what grabs a woman's heart. And women feel all sorts of pressure on this. And I feel for them. They feel all sorts of pressure to, to look a certain way. And they've been co become convinced that outward good looks are what matter most. And that's how you win a man's heart. But anyway, the look today is, is, as one writer said, not promoting spirituality, it promotes sexuality. In 1 Peter 2.9, Paul tells the women to be modest. He says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. That's Titus 2.9 and 10. And one pastor pointed out that God was the first, first clothing designer. Uh, think about that one. Back in Genesis, after they sinned, they tried to do the fig leaf thing. He said, no, I'm going to kill an animal, and you're going to wear these skins. And they were meant to cover them up. Clothing today is meant to show as much as possible. So Paul and Peter are both saying, a wife does not wear revealing clothes that draw provocative attention or suggestive in any way. Ladies, you don't want to be attracted to a man who likes you just because you're pretty. You don't. 
or you're, a, you're physically fit or you're a stylish dresser because the minute that goes, he's gone. If, that's, if he's that shallow, if that's all that matters to him, when that stuff goes, he's gone. You want a man to fall in love with you in your heart for who you are and who you are on the inside. And that's what he talks about in verse 4, cultivate inner beauty. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality. So he moves from the external. Don't focus on the externals. Let's focus on the internal, the inner life, the inner person. He says, with the, he calls it imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. This is what makes you attractive and beautiful, the hidden person of the heart. It's the heart. It's our words are reflected by what come, what's going on in our heart. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Our thoughts are going to be reflected in our actions. Our attitudes are going to be reflected in our words and actions. The word gentle is the word for meek, and it means a humble attitude that patiently submits to God, not pushy or demanding, always trying to get your way, defending your rights. That's what this whole section's been about. It's a word that's used of Jesus. I am gentle and humble of heart. Peter's saying, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Focus on cultivating gentleness not being loud and boisterous and and creating all kinds of disturbances, but just a quiet strength, a strength under control. And that's not going on today. That's not going on today. That's not the image of women today at all in our culture. You know that. Movies and magazines, you're strong, aggressive, self-assertive, seductive women. That's what you see today. That's not how a woman who names the name of Christ should be. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. He calls it an imperishable quality. I think that's very interesting. Imperishable quality means it will live forever. That's the part of you that will go on and on. The external stuff will go away, fade away. But the internal imperishable quality of the heart, that will be forever. It never dies. It lives forever. 1 Timothy 4, 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It doesn't mean you don't ever go to the gym. It doesn't mean you don't try to be physically attractive for your husband. It doesn't mean that you don't ever focus on some external things, but you concentrate on eternal things. Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. (laughs) Guys, if you're not married, that is what you want to focus on. A woman who fears the Lord. I remember thinking about that right before I got married. I wanted to find a woman like that. I found that woman. (laughs) And that's what attracted me to her then and still does. And it is a quality that can take you through all kinds of trials in marriage. Man sees the outside. God sees the heart. There's a lot of beauty pageants all around us. Miss America, Miss Universe, Miss this, Miss that. All these beauty pageants. 
But ladies, you're always in a beauty pageant with God, and he's the judge. And he's looking at your heart. Is the heart beautiful? Is the heart changing? Is the heart becoming more conformed to the image of Christ? They're some of the prettiest women in the world, and they're ugly to God. Do you know that? Some of the prettiest women in the world, and they are ugly to God. Ugly in his sight. They're not attractive. They may be attractive in the world's eyes, but they're not attractive to God. So if if you're a godly man, you want what's appealing to God. You You want to be a man after God's own heart, and that's what matters to God. It's not your words, ladies. Sometimes women think if I just say enough, I'll change him. That's just not true. Peter says, no, it's your example. It's your example. Number five on this list of verse five. For this manner in former times, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, Paul goes back to the, excuse me, Peter goes back to the Old Testament. He says the reason these, old, these women of old submitted to their husbands is because they hoped in God. They, they had a confidence in God. They believe God has everything under control and, and he will provide and he will pro- protect. See, in other words, ladies, I get this. It's got to be. I told him this when I was preparing this. I said, it's got to be an act of faith for a woman to submit to her husband. It's a, an act of faith. The tendency is to fear. That's the next verse. The tendency is to fear. But it's an act of faith to trust God by submitting, by obeying him and submitting to this man. Your hope has got to be in God. It can't be in that person. I heard Keith Palmer say this recently, and I just think this is so true. If you're single and you're not content in being single, when you get married, you're not going to be content in marriage either. You may have find that hard to believe, but it's really true. If you have not learned how to find your commitment in Christ right now while you are single, if you have not learned to look to Christ and not to other people and look to circumstances for your fulfillment, if you have not learned to trust in Christ alone for your contentment as a single person, you will, know, you will not be content married either. No human being can carry the demand for your personal fulfillment. No human being was designed to carry another person's desires and fulfillment in life. And you'll go into marriage doing the very same thing. Oh, she's not what I expected, or he's not doing what I want, or he doesn't make me feel this, or she doesn't make me feel that, or whatever. You know, you're just constantly thinking thoughts like that. Our contentment has to be in the only one that can bring us contentment, and that is in Christ alone. We cannot look to another human being for that. And too many people are in marriages where they're putting that demand on their spouse. To be Christ to them. God will not share his glory with anybody else. He will not give anybody else the power to be that to you. He will not let anyone else be the idol that replaces him in your life. 
faith in God, hope in God alone. These women could do what they did in the Old Testament when they submitted to their husbands because their hope was in God. They saw beyond their husbands and they saw God. And His provision and His protection and their satisfaction was in Him and not somebody else. Faith dispels all fear and gives you strength and courage to submit your husband knowing that God will use him to sanctify in you and change you. Even if your husband is a jerk, even if your husband is a jerk, don't let him be bigger than God. Don't let your husband be bigger than God. He's not. Can't ruin, he cannot ruin your life. He can't do that. He's not powerful enough to do that. And finally, fear nothing. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Abraham's wife was Sarah. She respected Abraham. This verse tells us she honored him. She referred to him as Lord. This is the time when the angels came to their house, came to where they lived to inform them they were going to have children, a child, excuse me, a child. When this, when she laughed, she referred to Abraham as her Lord in the, in, as she's talking to God. Abraham let Sarah down a lot. He lied about her twice. Imagine her having to hear him say, I'm taking our son, Isaac, up to the top of the mountain and he's going to get killed. Just imagine things like that. Being called from home into a strange land. All of these things that she had to follow her husband through. I think what Peter's saying here and using that is don't be frightened by fear. Don't be afraid to submit to your husband. Don't be afraid to be the example, godly example to your husband. I think that's how he's summing this up. Don't be afraid to submit to your husband with a gentle and quiet spirit. Sounds so against what you're thinking naturally. I get it. Peter gets it. He knows you're afraid. He knows you're afraid. Don't let your fear, I think fear is something women struggle with maybe more than men. That's another generalization, so don't hold me to that, but I think that's true. Men struggle with things like, I can go on for an hour on this one, but let me just, prideful, laziness, selfishness. But I think ladies tend to be anxious and fearful more a lot of times than men, or at least we just stuff it better or something. That's one of the main reasons I think women have a hard time submitting to their husband. And I don't, I understand, I can only imagine that. What might happen? What if he's unreasonable? What if he never changes? What if I get used as a doormat First Peter 2, 21 through 23, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Just think of the faith of Sarah. She says in that verse, when you 
if you do what is right, he says, uh, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. If, meaning that when you imitate Sarah, her faith, you're one of her children. Go back up to verse 1. We'll close with this. You see it in verse 1? That they, in the verse, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Hmm. Same thing we saw in chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers as they see your good deeds and observe them. It's the same idea. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste, means long-term. It's long-term watching you. They're always watching you. They're watching you. It's the same idea. And you can keep praying, God, change him. It may take months, it may take years. God, break him down. God, you care more about his salvation than I do. You care more about his sanctification than I do. God, may he see your transforming power in my life. May he see me keep entrusting myself to you as Jesus did when he was suffering unjustly. Just kept entrusting himself to God. Able not to revile in return. Able not to pay back evil for evil. Not because you're so good or I'm so good at not doing that, but because he's so good and he's so gracious and he's so powerful as he works in our lives. See, ladies, you do not have to resort to nagging. You do not have to put birth, excuse me, you don't have to put uh, Bible verses on his beer cans. You don't have to do that. You don't have to play Christian music all the time. You don't have to do that. You don't have to set the radio stations in the car to the Christian radio station. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to put tracks in his lunchbox. I mean, you don't have to do all of that. That Those things may be more hindrances than they are stepping stones. Peter is saying, it is by your behavior that they may be one as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You see, evangelism is God's job. It's God's job. Our job is to be the messenger, but it's his job to save people. And you pray he will do that as you live your life before him. When you see changes, thank God for it. Oh my goodness, small things. God, thank you for that change. And when you don't see changes, trust God. Just trust God. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Not an easy message, God, but a hopeful one. Only a message that a believer could truly value and appreciate. Only a believer could understand that though this is countercultural, it's what brings glory to Christ, and that's what we're here about. We're, we're here to bring glory to you. We're not here to exalt ourselves or to pat ourselves on the back or to exalt the flesh. We're here, God, to exalt you and to make much of you. And we have a watching world, and that's the mission field, and maybe the mission field is right in our own house. And God, we want to be lights that shine brightly 
because salvation is what really matters more than anything else, more than my rights, my feelings. It's eternal salvation. God, we praise you and thank you for this time today in Jesus' name. Amen.